Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. Just this past weekend, I took full advantage of the veterans discount offered by our local home improvement center. I know I'm not the only one who appreciates the perks like these that come about simply because I once wore a uniform. Most of this is a genuine show of appreciation from people who are proud of the military and grateful for the people who choose to serve, and for that, I am profoundly grateful. I suspect that for some people making such offers, there is a touch of guilt as well. A quick Google search of civilian guilt provides some evidence of this. It's also demonstrated whenever a conversation starts with, I almost joined, but, and there's hardly a veteran out there who has not had to listen to one of those stories at some point. I know I certainly have. There have been a few occasions when my time in uniform comes up in the course of a conversation, and someone my own age will come right out and say they feel bad about not serving. When the draft ended in December of 1972, I think a shift occurred in the minds of most Americans, because every person who has served since then did so because they made a choice and not because their birth, their birth date was pulled from a glass bowl, attitudes towards those who served shifted. Before, the military drew from a wider swath of society, creating a greater sense of shared sacrifice because the chances of knowing someone in the military were higher. Since the draft ended, the small percentage of the population that has made that choice has grown increasingly small. It's now less than 1%. For many Americans, military service is a dangerous job other people do on their behalf, and that's the source of the guilt and the indulgences. At the level of personal interactions that come in the form of thank you for your service or discounted geraniums, and once again, thank you, unnamed big box home improvement center, civilian guilt is really not that big of an issue. But it is a big deal when that guilt spills into public discourse and influences policy decisions. Military members enjoy an outsized level of respect and trust in American society. Gallup conducted a poll in 2019 ranking the most trusted American institutions. The military topped the list with 73% of respondents saying they had a great deal of confidence in the armed forces. For comparison's sake, the medical system ranked seventh with only 36% and Congress ranked dead last with only 11%. This is why politicians tend to highlight their military endorsements and surround themselves with retired military officers on the campaign trail and in their administrations. When the big sell is needed, the credibility that comes with military service is often employed. The world will never forget that it was then Secretary of State and retired Army General Colin Powell and not UN Ambassador John Negroponte making the case for the invasion of Iraq to the Security Council on February 5, 2003. We, of course, have a tradition of elevating military heroes to important positions that long predates the all-volunteer force. Washington, Jackson, Tyler, Grant, Eisenhower, and several other presidents gained prominence because of their military exploits. The issue is not that we celebrate military heroes and elect a few to prominent civilian positions, but that society has a tendency to drop its collective guard a little when a person flashes their military credentials. The statements and claims of someone that has served are more readily accepted as true by virtue of the uniform. 
I think part of the problem is the divide between the civilian and military worlds. In the United States, we have soldier citizens, professional warriors who volunteer to give up their civilian lives and live apart from regular society. Our current military system, both intentionally and unintentionally, works to separate service members from the society they serve. At boot camp, recruits receive a new identity in the form of a shorn head or a tight bun that serves as a visual reminder that they are part of a new tribe. Most major military bases are located in areas remote from the major population centers. People who make a career in the military move frequently, which serves to prevent them from establishing roots in any single location. In the minds of many civilians, this creates a certain sense of obligation that goes beyond discounts and picking up the occasional bar tab. History has shown that the soldier-citizen model is not the only way to arrange things. The founders of our republic believed in the citizen-soldier, people who would leave their farms and shops and take up arms in time of need, and then return to their regular lives. The character of modern warfare does demand a level of professionalism due to the complexity of military technology, but I think we have taken it to an extreme that has had some deleterious policy effects. As a historian, I am always interested to look to the past to see what worked and how such practices can be adapted for our use. Dr. Steele Brand, a professor of history at the King's College in New York City, explored the differences between the citizen-soldier and the soldier-citizen in his recent book, Killing for the Republic. Republican Rome produced highly adaptive armies with farmers who would moonlight as effective soldiers during the campaigning season and then return to their families in plows a practice that helped to remove the barriers between the military and the society it served. The difference between a, a citizen soldier and a soldier citizen, I, and, and you can look at these in a lot of different categories, but the, I would say the main difference is uh, the question of vocation. If we're, trying to, if we're trying to make something similar between ancient and modern, so there's, there's the question of pay. Does pay make someone a professional or a citizen soldier? No, not really, because they're going to balance out soldiers who are on campaign uh, by giving them pay. Or what about making a living even temporarily? Well, that, that can't count either. Or, or skill level. Can a citizen soldier be more skilled than a warrior or a professional? Does that make him then actually a professional? I don't think that any of those things matter. I think it's the question of vocation. Does war interrupt what you do uh, as your vocation to make a living? Uh, or does uh, war, is that the thing that gives you a living? And, and here I'm actually drawing on the Renaissance thinkers to trying to, to, to say, hey, we, we don't have citizen soldiers, we, or maybe we should. And that that's the kind of distinction that they make. So a citizen soldier is someone, at least in Rome, who was primarily a farmer. Uh, and they were usually young men, oftentimes they had been before they were married, maybe with their older or they're in the aristocracy. They're going to be uh, they might be married when, when they reach their, uh, their young 30s, and by that time they're looking at possibly being phased out, unless they're commanders in which they, they could be significantly older. But a, a citizen soldier leaves the farm, he goes out, he campaigns on behalf of Rome, and he campaigns to defend not merely the state, the republic, uh, but also to defend the community from which he yeah, he springs to defend the farm from which he comes. And I could get into a lot of the details about how uh, this is created, but I think we'll just start with that really basic definition uh, of what is a citizen soldier and what distinguishes him from something uh, that is a professional soldier or even a soldier citizen where uh, it's their vocation and not merely an interruption from what their vocation is. So the, the flip side of that would be the soldier citizen. Can you talk to that a little bit and explain that? 
Sure. That the best example, and I start off with this in in the book, is I I use the example of Athens versus Sparta. So with Athens, they uh, their men are going to uh, leave the family farms and they're going to go fight uh, potentially as a sailor when they when they become more democratized, but as a soldier or a hoplite or a, a light infantryman, and then they're going to return back to their farms. Uh, uh, after the war is over, after the battle has been completed. Whereas the Spartan, they actually enslave the neighboring population. Scholars' estimates vary, but maybe it's around nine-tenths of the population are not Spartan citizens, and it could be even a smaller percentage that are actually citizens in Sparta. The citizens in Sparta train full-time for war. Other people do farming. But the soldier citizen is the guy who this is what he does uh, basically for a living. And Sparta is able to do this because they enslaved the local population, the people that they had defeated in these earlier wars. And they create an entire system that is based on the soldier citizen. And to be a citizen, you have to be a soldier. And if you can't be a soldier, then you can't be a citizen. Well, that's different from a citizen soldier whose vocation is something else. And in the ancient world, it's almost always farming. In fact, in the pre-modern world, really up to around 1900, it's almost always uh, farmers who are going to be uh, citizen soldiers and then leave that, uh, that farming vocation to go out and defend the republic. Interesting. Well, I always like asking this of, of historians. Did you, were you surprised by anything that you found out in the course of the research for this project? You know, when I first came to the Roman Republic when I was an undergraduate, I think the thing that surprised me, and it still surprised me as I was doing the research, you know, after I'd gotten my PhD, the thing that surprised me was how much Rome lost. They, they lose a lot of battles. And of course, their most famous opponent, Hannibal Barca, uh, just hands them defeat after defeat after defeat, especially in the first three years of the Second Punic War. And so that made me think, well... You know, of course, professional soldiers can be better. They can be more effective than citizen soldiers. But the thing is, Rome, despite losing all these battles, figured out how to defeat the very enemies that had defeated them and then how to absorb all these defeats as they're learning how to defeat their enemies. And so they can defeat armies that are a lot more capable than them in the long run, even if in the short run, they're going to lose a lot of battles. And this happens over and over again with the Etruscans at the beginning of their, uh, first during the monarchy and then during the Republic. Uh, the Gauls come down, they have a sweeping defeat of them uh, in around 390 BC. The Samnites, they get a, a number of defeats against them. These are these Italian tribes. And then, of course, of course, the Carthaginians are the famous example where they lose battle after battle against Hannibal. But in the long run, they figure out, OK, my enemy is doing this. I'm going to adopt that and I'm going to adapt it. And then we're going to keep putting men in the field and we're going to figure out uh, how to defeat them. And the, the reason they're able to do this uh, is because they've got a superior civic culture, even if at times they have an inferior tactical capability. So would you say overall that Republican Rome created effective armies and had competent, effective soldiers? I would say, and in the long run, no one does it better. And I, I think when, when you put two opposing forces on the battlefield, the, the edge of the moment uh, might go to uh, a superior fighting force in the sense that they've got uh, men who are more trained. They've got guys who have better equipment. They have people who have uh, the better technology at the moment. But 
uh, what matters is how, how do you win wars? How do you absorb uh, defeats or how do you manage defeats and then be able to turn that into a victory in the long run? And Rome did this really, I, I think if, if we're just going to boil this down, what did, what did the superior civic culture look like? I think it came from two things. I think it came from manpower. They had an enormous political system that started with the small uh, sort of city-state of Rome and then the environment that included the citizens at the very beginning of their history. And they grew this manpower base to include more citizens and to include more allies in a broader federation of the Roman Republic. And then the second thing, because that, that's just men, that's just those are numbers. They had a superior quantity of soldiers, but they also had a superior quality of a civic ethos. And that's that's their martial habituation. This is built by this sense of these these young men who are trained by their fathers. I need to defend the family farm. I need to defend my neighbor's farm. I need to defend the republic that binds all of these farms together. And there's this culture of courage and bravery and service and sacrifice that keeps not only more men in the field, but also allows these men to keep going back and to learn from their enemies and to figure out how to defeat them. Conventional wisdom here in the United States largely holds that professional soldiers are the better soldiers. Does the Roman example, in your opinion, bear that out? So professional soldiers, like I mentioned, uh, they're going to defeat the average part-timer uh, in any specific moment. I mean, you see this time and again uh, in not only American history, but also in uh, in European history. Take, for example, the Vikings. The Vikings are able to defeat uh, an Anglo-Saxon army. and uh, uh, But why don't the Vikings defeat England? Why don't they take over all of England? They almost do, but they don't. Well, it's because there's something else. There's more uh, to war that makes an army effective. And Polybius writes about this. So Polybius is uh, a Greek who is uh, from the city of Megalopolis. He's, from, he's part of the Achaean League. And he saw the rise of Rome. And he said, I've got to explain how Rome was able to uh, to pull off this great victory and it create this this effective army that was able to defeat all of its opponents, including opponents that had beaten it. And he writes, he pauses at the at the at the darkest moment in Roman history. This is after after Hannibal has defeated the Romans uh, three times. He's, he's three huge victories. So there's been a number of small victories, but three very significant battles. And and the Romans have just lost the Battle of Cannae, maybe around seventy thousand. Uh, of their forces, uh, 70,000 men have been destroyed. And we're talking that but the population of Italy has just been destroyed in the first three years of the campaign. And he pauses right in his history, right there, Polybius does, and says, okay, how did Rome, how did Rome absorb this? And you know what he does? He, he takes book six. So he's, he's partway into his, into his story of Rome. And he talks about the Roman constitution. But he doesn't talk about the Roman Constitution the way we would think someone's going to talk about the Roman Constitution. If we were going to talk about it, we'd look at the text itself, and then we would look at the process by which it came into being. We'd look at case law, et cetera. Well, he does a little bit of that because he describes the different forms of the Roman government. So he talks about how they've got a Senate that kind of that's basically drawn from the aristocracy. They've got a, a monarchical element. These guys are the consuls. You could have a dictator in times of emergency. And then they've got the assemblies that vote people into office and give them political power. But he doesn't do just that. For Polybius, the constitution was a lot bigger. It also included the military, the discipline that goes into the military. So part of that constitution, when he talks in book six, is he has this huge digression on the Roman camp. Why is Polybius talking about the Roman camp? Because this is when these boys, these young men, are taken out 
of their household, where they've re basically received their their rudimentary training in and in, uh, in things like throwing javelins or swimming uh, or fist fighting. Uh, they're taken out of that and they're put into a unit. And they're, they're, they are put in this unit, and then they go on the march, and they build a camp. And they learn unit cohesion. They learn discipline. And Polybius goes into all the specifics of the Roman camp, and he says this is a part of the Roman constitution. But not only so, he closes out Book 6 by describing the thing that binds all of this together, the Roman army, the sense of discipline, uh, the citizen soldier who's fighting, fighting to defend his farm. The thing that binds all of this together in the Republic is a sense of civic virtue. And he says in Rome, these young men, they look at the funerals of some famous commander, some famous general who'd sacrificed all for the Republic, who'd done great things on behalf of the Republic. And they watch this funeral and they say, I want to be like that guy. I want to sacrifice the way this great commander, this great general did. And it's that sense of civic virtue that I have to serve the broader cause. I have to serve the Republic that made Roman armies in the long run far more effective than any of their opponents. Wow. So can can you speak to the the Roman soldier's place in larger Republican Roman society? And I ask that from an American perspective, where polls consistently show that the military rates far higher than Congress and the news media and and all kinds of other institutions as far as trustworthiness goes. If a if a, if a Gallup employee went back to Republican Rome and conducted a similar survey, would they find similar results? I think he would, but I think we've got to step back and actually look at some differences between the Roman Republic and the modern American Republic. And, and America's attitude towards military service has shifted. Uh, maybe it's better, maybe it's worse, but it's certainly shifted. I think what you would find in uh, first of all, that would be similar is there are certain values that go into serving as a soldier that are, are praiseworthy, uh, courage, loyalty, discipline. And the Romans were extremely severe for anyone who demonstrated cowardice or who fell asleep on guard duty. If you go through basic training today, there you will you will learn some of the most basic things you will learn is the uh, the essential nature of serving on guard duty and how you absolutely cannot fall asleep or abandon guard duty. Well, Romans had these same sort of ideas. So there's this set of common values that are going to be similar among almost any military that exists: uh, loyalty, courage, uh, industry in the sense of like being being able to do your job. Uh, discipline, not merely the discipline of following the chain of command, but also the discipline to keep your body honed and trained and and, and uh, be able to defeat an enemy and fight him face to face uh, on the field of battle. However, if we step back and look at Rome compared to the United States today, here's what would have been very different. Rome expects most of the property holding citizens to defend the Republic. If you have uh, even a small amount of, of property, you're talking about a few acres here, uh, then you were expected to uh, serve on behalf of the Republic. That, that's really different than today. Uh, it, it would have been unthinkable for someone to rise to political power in the Roman Republic who had not fought on campaigns. And Rome is campaigning nearly annually. Whereas today, it, it's, almost, it's very rare that we would see uh, a lot of veterans uh, in Congress, you're not expecting to see a majority of veterans in the, in in Congress or to, who have served in the military to become president. That's that's different a little bit from America's past, but it's remarkably different from 
the the Roman Republic. Civic virtue demanded that Roman citizens uh, participate in the assembly, but then also defend their participation by uh, going out on the field of battle and facing the enemy and going on campaigns. Now, initially, these campaigns, they would just ask these boys to leave uh, for uh, the fighting season. So maybe uh, in, sometime in spring to fall so that you can plant uh, or sow your harvest, your, your winter wheat, and then come back and then, then, then sow that winter wheat uh, in October. Well, Rome had to change this when they started fighting bigger wars uh, abroad or sending men to Spain or uh, across the sea to Illyria or to Greece. And they actually start demanding life cycles instead of annual cycles. So if you're a young man between the age of 17 and maybe 31 or 32, it's expected that you're going to spend several years abroad on campaign. And your family has to figure out how to absorb that. And then when you return, you'll marry and then you'll have your own sons and then you'll stay at home primarily. And they still maintain this idea that you're a farmer first, and then you're a citizen, and then finally you're a soldier. So the expectations are very, very different. And I think if Rasmussen were to go back and look at Rome, that's what they would find different, are those expectations for what it means to be a good citizen. Okay. Well, let me put this one to you. Can you describe the differences between the way the Roman Republic transformed a citizen farmer into a soldier versus the way we do the same thing in the United States today. So I know a bit about both of these, and I think we can, well, let's just, let's just start with Rome. We can piece together what it looks like for uh, a Roman citizen to become a citizen soldier. So they're born on a family farm. It's an extended family farm. You're not, you're going to have usually more than the nuclear family on the farm. Uh, it, w based on a few sources that we have, it looks like what we what we've got are Roman fathers, potentially grandfathers, uh, teaching their sons uh, basic skills like boxing and uh, sword fighting and hurling javelins and hunting animals and dealing with uh, death in the sense of you know the animals that you've killed. And they're also teaching them basic things like a sense of piety. Now, piety is a really really big deal in the Roman Republic. Uh, it's not like a, a little spiritual category like a lot of moderns think of piety. Piety is this sense that you honor your ancestors. They would even have a little hearth inside the home itself. You honor the ancestral gods. Your ancestors themselves are, are sort of a part of this, and you have uh, a degree of loyalty that you have to show toward, toward them. They would even be incorporated in uh, festivals. Now, why do I mention all of this? Because a huge part of that is the civic service that ancestors have served. Now, for... The average citizen soldier, it's going to be pretty rudimentary, the kinds of skills that they're learning. But they're still taught this first on the family farm. And then what happens is they would be mustered out. They'd be called out to serve. You've got a process that they go through for calling up, for basically drafting the citizen soldiers. And then they would join their unit. And I mentioned this earlier, but basically when you get to, you'd, you'd be a part of you know the, the first legion, the second legion, the third legion. And then basically you'd learn how, okay, these are the guys that I'm going to be fighting with. These are the guys I'm going to be standing next to when when we encounter the Macedonians or the Carthaginians or the Samnites. And so you get a sense of loyalty that develops out of that. And just marching, learning basic maneuvers like, hey, we need to move sideways or we need to move forward or back. Uh, Warfare is not really complicated uh, in that day and age. 
learning how to, the timing of throwing the javelin, how to use your long shield, how to use your, your uh, gladius eventually by the third century, uh, and, and simple cut and thrust maneuvers while you're fighting as a unit, and then building that camp and knowing where to be and knowing what trumpet signals to follow. That's basically basic training, which happens, starts on the farm, and then it transitions into uh, it's sort of put in a broader scale when you get to the Republic as a whole. Well, as the way I've just described it indicates, that's pretty different. That's pretty different from what we expect people today. When So I went to basic training. And when I went to basic training, it was assumed I didn't know anything about firing a weapon. It was assumed I was I may not have been in very good shape. It was assumed that I didn't know anything about uh, a sense of civic uh, unity or a sense of, or I didn't have a sense of civic militarism. All those things had to be trained in basic training, which is why they remove trainees for nine. I was in a special 13 week basic training program and they do all of these things. They basically start from scratch and they remove you from your family and they tell you you're now a part of a new family. You're a part of uh, the, and they use the term family a lot because they're trying to build this sense of civic and military cohesion. And uh, they're, because they're starting from scratch, uh, it looks very different from what you had with Rome. And it's not until really you get until uh, maybe the second half of your first year of training that you're actually learning uh, the kinds of things that you're going to use in combat. Now, our, our military has a lot more technical expertise, a lot more things they have to deal with. But the training in the civic militarism, the, learn, the gaining physical fitness, the gaining a sense of virtue and purpose and fighting as a unit and uh, the ideals and the loyal, the, the, the virtues you're supposed to exhibit, that all is, is built into basic training by removing you from your family. Now, Rome says we're going to build on top of these things that already exist in the family. So it's a very, very different thing. Why? Why is it that way? Because our army looks more like a professional fighting force. It, it's part of this is capitalism. We want to have a specialized force. We have specialization of labor. You have a war that needs to be fought. Well, let's get the guys who fight wars. Let's not ask someone else to stop making widgets and then go fight a war. That's inefficient. Instead, let's just get guys who fight wars to go out and fight wars. And that's kind of the way that Americans think of war nowadays. Okay. So what would you say are the consequences of those differences on contemporary American society? Well, I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is that it is different. I think I don't think the difference occurs. You've got a, some changes in the 19th century with the really, really long uh, wars that are fought, particularly as they're as they're pushing the Native Americans uh, out of Florida and then further westward. Uh, so there are some shifts there because you have a, a an ongoing professional fighting force that is going to do this. You're not going to enlist. Uh, you know, you're not going to draft citizens to do this sort of fighting, but that's not really when the major change is. Everyone would acknowledge you have to have some sort of small fighting force that is there to train uh, the rookies when they come in. Even a citizen army wants this sort of thing, uh, wants this sort of small professional fighting force that's there and ready to train people. But when it really starts to shift, I think it's probably more in the Cold War. You've got the first peacetime draft. Uh, that is occurring with uh, with Truman, and you're maintaining a level uh, of mobilization that had not been seen before. And there was the sense that we need people to always be ready to serve, uh, that and always be serving in various places throughout the globe. You know, starting with uh, with uh, Southeast Asia, and then what uh, puts the nail in the coffin for Americans is is the Vietnam War, and they don't officially 
end the possibility of the draft, but functionally after the Vietnam War, uh, the draft is it's a it's politically impossible to achieve. So what you have to have instead is an all volunteer force, which is the way we've basically been functioning since uh, the end, the conclusion of the Vietnam War. Now, what are the consequences of this change? Well, we're a little less like we were uh, as a republic than how we started. Now, maybe some would say that's good. Maybe that's bad. Most times in history, if you look throughout history and you look at Republican governments, uh, most of the time they are defended by citizen soldiers. This is why Montesquieu says, if you want a republic, you need to have citizen armies. If you want a monarchy, well, then you need to have professional armies. That's not always true, but it, it is mostly true. Carthage is a republic, for example. They use mercenaries. This is a point that Polybius says makes Rome superior as a republic because it relies on its citizens that are defending hearth and home and not mercenaries who are defending on pay. I think the another consequence of this is the sense of service and then the sense of sacrifice that everyone keenly felt in the 60s and 70s during Vietnam, that is no longer in existence. It is not, uh, there's not a fear that, oh my gosh, if we go to war, I may lose my son to go fight in a war. I may have to stop whatever I'm doing uh, to, to uh, go in and serve in the military. That, I think, is a loss that hurts any republic. You need a citizenry that is willing to demonstrate civic virtue. And in the sense of, service and sacrifice. And I think military service and sacrifice is a part of that. And I think that would should make us all pretty nervous about uh, what the long-term implications will be for our republic if we're not expecting our citizens to be willing to serve anytime that uh, we have these kinds of uh, military conflicts, which uh, look like are going to be ongoing. And maybe they're going to shift and have to be applied in different ways with the new kinds of threats that we're seeing in terms of uh, an epidemic. So before I read your book, I don't know that I'd ever really given a lot of thought to the concept of the citizen soldier, soldier citizen. And as I was reading your book, it really struck me what a difference it makes just by switching those two words around at the conceptual level, because the, the two are very different, which I think is one of the main points that you were trying to drive home uh, with your book. So in your estimation, did, did I get the point right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think, I think you're very accurate. And I mean, I mentioned this previously, it, it's these, the, the, it's right to uplift certain martial virtues. And I, I think it would be wrong to just outright condemn anyone who says, oh, well, we shouldn't be thanking servicemen or, or they, uh, they they should not be honored. Uh, that that that's that, that's not the case at all. I I think that it, it's right to uplift these things. However, I think your point. I think about it this way: the, your point about a a service member goes into uh, Congress and you know presents a uh, you know a, a a military. He's he's commenting on some sort of uh, weapon system or. Um, something related to uh, the, uh, the the manner in which militaries function or a piece of technology that we need, or more importantly, perhaps, uh, how we're waging a campaign and the kinds of enemies that we're fighting. If you have people who... So it, it's fine to trust them in a sense because uh, you respect 
their sense of loyalty, the kinds of life that they have chosen. However, the problem with that is that's not the way republics are supposed to function. What's supposed to happen in a republic is that there's a shared experience. And when you take away the shared experience, you lose a lot of collective knowledge, which, and you also lose a lot of collective wisdom. Again, that was Dr. Steelbrand. Now, a disclaimer, I am not suggesting that we should scrap our entire military system and create a new one on the Roman model, nor am I saying that people should stop appreciating veterans. I am saying the pendulum should swing back towards the middle, where people admire the troops for the difficult job they do, but be slightly less credulous when someone uses their active or retired rank to sell us something. That's it for this time. You can learn more about military reform, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can follow us on Twitter at at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Military Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth. <laughs>